2: Hello, I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio. And this week, The Economist asks, can President Trump's proposed grand bargain with Russia work?
1: We have to see if he can make that evolution from being real Donald Trump, uh, his Twitter handle, to being POTUS, to being the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of America. You have to keep the pressure on, you have to keep engagement up but
0: nobody should imagine that we're going to get to a good result uh, until there's someone different in the Kremlin.
2: He's only been in office for three weeks, but already Mr Trump has generated considerable unease in America and far beyond. Old alliances appear to be under pressure, while policies and relationships are undergoing turbulent shifts. The European Union and NATO are two organisations that have underpinned the international order for decades. Yet Mr Trump doesn't appear to give them much weight and often he's been downright dismissive of them. But perhaps highest on his agenda is Vladimir Putin and Russia. Can Mr Putin be trusted as a partner for the new man in the White House? Joining me is The Economist's foreign editor, Robert Guest. Robert, we're looking at the idea of a grand bargain between America, the new administration and Vladimir Putin's Russia. But how plausible is that?
0: Well, it's in the air at the moment. And clearly there are people within the Trump administration, such as Stephen Bannon, who think it is desirable to have a grand bargain with Russia. So that's roughly speaking. You do a deal with Russia. You give Vladimir Putin a bunch of the things that he wants. And in return, he helps you contain China and smash ISIS, Islamic State. That's the idea. Sounds very neat. Why won't it work? It won't work for two reasons. Firstly... Russia is not remotely capable of delivering these things. The idea that you get a declining, economically feeble power like Russia to contain China, which is, you know, the big, economically dynamic power, it's much bigger in terms of people, in terms of firepower, in terms of economic growth, everything. The idea that Russia can contain China is a complete non-starter, even if they wanted to, which they clearly don't, and nothing that Trump can offer them will make them try to. With Islamic State, there's a little bit more plausibility. I mean, Vladimir Putin does have the ability to drop very large amounts of bombs on Islamic State positions in Syria. And there's this argument that because he's much less squeamish about civilian casualties than any American force would be, he'd be a useful ally in that fight. But so far, we haven't seen him do very much against Islamic State. He's principally been killing the non-Islamic State enemies of his client in Syria, the dictator Bashar assad So he hasn't shown that he's willing to do this. uh, And the Russians don't have the boots on the ground. That's the Iranians. It'd be very difficult to split them apart from the Iranians. And, you know, another of Trump's great objectives is to squash Iran, which is very difficult to do if you're allied with Russia. So that's very unlikely to work as well.
2: Of those two, I would guess that new President Trump likes the ISIS line as the one he'd like to pursue Quickest, he said he wants to crush ISIS. He wants to sound very decisive about ISIS in a way that all administrations have, have struggled to, to know what to do about this kind of horrendous fundamentalism and everything that flows from it. Is this much more about optics than it is about a real policy play?
0: It could be more about optics, yes. I mean, everyone agrees that uh, Islamic State uh, is an appalling thing and, and, and needs to be destroyed. But to be honest, you know, the fight against Islamic State is going reasonably well already. They are already on a path to losing, first in Iraq and then probably after that in Syria. The the difficulty comes then with what happens next when you have a sort of a vacuum there. Who takes over? Uh, Will the people of Mosul tolerate being dominated by uh, Shiite uh, Iran or the government in Baghdad? Probably not. What do you do about the Sunni Arab bits of Syria that ISIS is likely to be driven out of? It's not at all clear that Russia is going to be helpful there.
2: Well, let's assume that this grand bargain offer in some form is made by President Trump and his senior team. What would they be looking for on the other side?
0: Well, this is the worst part of it that the kind of things that Vladimir Putin wants out of this are things that are extremely valuable and that Trump may not realize just how valuable they are. So he would want it to be recognized that Crimea, which he has stolen from Ukraine, is part of Russia. He would want to be uh, have sanctions lifted on Russia and Russia to be allowed to continue to exercise sway over eastern Ukraine, the area which they've surreptitiously invaded. Those are things that you just can't Offer him. I mean, those are things that he should be forced to do, and that's the, the purpose of the sanctions regime. And there's also this, this 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 terrible agenda that he has of trying to carve out an area of Russian uh, influence, a Russian backyard, the near abroad, as he calls it, where he can, you know, overthrow governments if he wants to, or at least influence or corrupt them. And he's trying very hard to undermine the European Union and NATO, two organisations that are absolutely fundamental to peace, stability and security in Europe and which Trump appears not to care about or even support.
2: Given that President Trump doesn't support the internal logic that has sustained institutions like NATO, even under the stresses and strains since 1990, what would be your killer argument with him as to why he shouldn't go down this road?
0: One argument you could use is it's very clear that Vladimir Putin is not someone you can do a deal with and trust that he'll keep his part of it. He has, you know, an even longer history of breaking his word than Mr. Trump does.
2: How different is this from a kind of re reset, if you like, of relations between Washington and Moscow? Diplomatic sources close to Hillary Clinton were saying in the campaign, and I. I think with some credibility, that she was looking for a different tone in dealings with Moscow. She felt that uh, President Obama had not played the best possible hand, even with extremely uh, difficult Vladimir Putin. Why is this so different?
0: Well, it is very different. I mean, I'm not saying that Barack Obama did a good job with Russia. He did a terrible job with Russia. But that doesn't mean that everything that's different from what he did will be good. Hillary Clinton was looking for a small reset. And there are certain things you can talk to Russia about. You can talk about, you know, trying to reduce the nuclear stockpiles. You can try to improve communications between the military so that you don't have miscalculations. You know, we've had uh, Russian planes flying you know, incredibly close to American ones. You really don't want to have a clash. So you need to have communications. You need to do low-level talks. But the idea of a big grand bargain and Russia as our new best friend, that's simply not going to happen while it is a, uh, you know, run by Vladimir Putin.
2: And where does this leave a possible recalibration of the Iran deal? Perhaps hawks versus doves on Russia and the Soviet Union is is as old as the Soviet Union itself. But Iran seems to divide the Senate rather differently. We've seen John McCain in the past few days saying that it's perhaps one of the few things in which he seems to shade towards agreeing with Mr. Trump that the Iran deal was too generous and he believes it should be revisited?
0: Lots of people do think that the Iran deal was too generous. The difficulty is coming up with something better. And at the moment, the the Iran deal is the only game in town as far as containing uh, Iran is concerned. So far, they appear not to be cheating, although you, you can never be completely sure. And that that's that, that's something that we've got. The idea that you tear that up and get something better When you're threatening them, but at the same time trying to make nice with their firmest ally, Russia, I think that's a very difficult game to play, particularly if, like Mr Trump, you don't really understand the motivations of any of the players.
2: We'll be hearing from Fred Kemper shortly, foreign policy expert, who says that America needs clearer choices on Syria, on Ukraine, on the big picture, and yet lots of detente thrived on not having very clear choices, or at least not forcing them. What's your view?
0: I think on Syria we should have had a clear policy uh, a few years back when it was still possible to prevent the country from collapsing completely. Uh, where we are now is a very difficult place and it's 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 going to be messy and I think we have to be sort of reasonably flexible about it. On the case of Russia, I mean you have to keep, you know, you, you have to keep the pressure on, you have to keep engagement up, but nobody should imagine that we're going to get to a good result uh, until there's someone different in the Kremlin.
2: Robert Guest, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, for another insight into the Russia-America grand bargain and the wider choices facing Mr Trump's administration, including what to do about Syria and Iran, I turn to Fred Kemper. He heads the Atlantic Council, based in Washington, and before that he was a prize-winning author, covering events from the rise of solidarity in Poland to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the unification of Germany. He's also studied the interplay of American presidents and global flashpoints, as the author of Berlin 1961, Kennedy, Khrushchev and the Most Dangerous Place on Earth. So to get a clearer picture of the people guiding the new president's view of global affairs, I began by asking Fred for his view on Mr. Trump's global philosophy.
1: So he has a a good number of different people as independent operators. Each of them telling their own story about where they want to take things. But Trump himself really hasn't articulated uh, a global strategy. And I think it's fair to say at this point, he just doesn't have one.
2: And yet this transition team would suggest that he or someone close to him has thought a lot about the personnel. How do you match that with the character who shoots from the hip, who in his interview with a British and German newspaper sounded like he was going to continue, kind of being rude for the sake of it, if you like, to lots of parts of the institutional outside world?
1: He's evolving. He's a deal maker, and that's not going to change. He's the first populist president we've elected since Andrew Jackson, that's not going to change. He is going to shoot from the hip, he's going to say things differently than other people. But he's also a pragmatist, he's not ideological. He does seem to evolve, he does seem to learn from the people who are advising him on issues. And so, you know, I think we have to be watchful, but this could turn out to be a a very interesting presidency. The world, in some respects, needs a jolt. NATO isn't working the way it should. Now, it may not be obsolete and you, may, you don't want to shut it down, but if the allies carry more burden and if they work more effectively against ISIS, which are the two things that President Trump wants, uh, that could be a good outcome. The question is, where do you draw the line between jolting people into action on issues that need to be fixed? and saying things that are rude and offensive that could have second or third order consequences in terms of harming a key relationship or uh, or making a dispute worse. And I think we're only going to learn that after we see a little bit more President Trump in office.
2: Life rhymes, as they say, and one of your books was on Berlin 1961, a key moment in the Cold War, the building of the Berlin Wall. We now have an opposite charge being thrown potentially at President Trump, that he's cozying up too much to Russia and to Vladimir Putin. What's your view?
1: Well, first, let me compare him to John F. Kennedy, as silly as that might sound. Uh, John F. Kennedy was elected at age 43, the youngest president elected in American history. He had a tough first year. Uh, You had the Bay of Pigs in April. You had a failed Vienna summit with Khrushchev, the Soviet leader, in, in June. Ultimately, you had the building of the Berlin Wall in August, which I've written about. The point is that he got a lot wrong because he just wasn't ready for the presidency. And the Soviet leader read through all of this weakness. I think the issue now is you could have a Vladimir Putin who says, you know, I can get some things done with this guy, You know, maybe swallow up Ukraine, maybe make a move on the Baltics. Uh, he doesn't like NATO very much. I might be able to undermine NATO. Uh, I think that's a very dangerous moment. My guess is that Donald Trump won't like that very much, a Donald Trump who does not want to be humiliated, very much cares about his personal prestige. Uh, I think you could have a Vladimir Putin who may underestimate Trump and go too far. On the other hand, you may find a Vladimir Putin who really knows how to play Trump, and plays him like a fiddle, and uh, and we end up in a bad place through that means. But I do think it's a key relationship to watch. It's really interesting as unpredictable, and as much as he's changed his statements on a whole host of different issues, he's remained quite consistent in his complimentary comments about President Putin and Russia. Very interesting to watch how that's now going to play out, and, and things will happen. Syria, he's gotta make some choices. Ukraine sanctions, he's got to make some choices. This is not something where a year from now, we're not gonna know what his relationship with Vladimir Putin is going to be like.
2: There does seem to be a mood or a whisper abroad that he's gonna trade away those sanctions, those hard-won sanctions. Uh, Angela Merkel had to put her shoulder to the wheel in Europe to to get that deal done. He's gonna trade that away and say to Vladimir Putin, take a good chunk of what you've secured in your military incursions in the last couple of years. Do you think that's the case?
1: On the one hand, one shouldn't underestimate what a president can get done in foreign policy because that is the area where a president can act without as many checks and balances as in other areas. But he still has checks and balances. Uh, He has a Republican Congress that mistrusts Vladimir Putin. He has an intelligence apparatus that has been watching uh, things that Putin is doing that are quite dangerous. I would think that if he does anything that is against the American interests with Putin, anything that reeks of being naive or endangering of our allies, that the checks and balances are gonna kick in. And uh, he'll be called to hearings in Congress. You'll have a blowback from some of our key allies. So, like so many other things regarding Donald Trump, I think this soup is going to be consumed not quite as hot as it's being cooked at the moment.
2: That's a very nice German phrase there, coming, coming out in your Fluent American. What about Donald Trump's relations with the intelligence services in the United States? It's been an extraordinary period in which material which may or may not have been compromised, may or may not have all been wholly true, has been put out there into the, the, the public domain. And one would imagine that there's going to be something of a reckoning.
1: You know, he has a very good CIA director in in Congressman Pompeo, and he has a very good director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, Ambassador Coats, a former ambassador to Germany, who has a very healthy skepticism about Russian intentions in the world. My guess is that once he starts getting briefed and once he starts hearing reports from the people he's put in these jobs, that his relationship with the intelligence uh, services is going to improve. Uh, At the moment, though, I think he puts himself in a position where if he wants to go head-to-head with intelligence services, the lessons of the past is you're going to suffer some leaks. And and, and that's not necessarily a good thing because confidential and secret information should not be leaked. On the other hand, it happens.
2: Germany, uh, uppermost in minds in Europe in terms of how it responds to challenges within the European Union, but also the election in Germany and, and next door in France this year, Do you have a clear idea of how transatlantic relationships are going to look with Berlin and Paris?
1: Two things. First of all, Donald Trump has a problem with Anglo-American. Whether he cares about it or not is another issue we have to see. But for him to repeat in the interview with the Times and with Bilt what he said previously on the campaign that how she handled refugees was a disaster, he's saying that as almost president about someone who's running for office this year, where that is going to be an issue in the campaign. And that does, for me, seem to cross a line. And especially she is the most important leader in Europe for our partnership there. Uh, And so it's not the right foot to get off on for one of the most important relationships you can possibly imagine.
2: But did Angela Merkel bring it on herself? I mean, she did give that rather schoolmarmish welcome, in which she seemed to uh, uh, read out of a list of fundamental rights to the incoming President of the United States. Clearly, uh, she didn't welcome his election, she showed it.
1: Look, you sit in the Oval Office, or you're about to sit in the Oval Office, and the last thing you can have is thin skin. You're going to suffer a lot of indignities or or even imagined indignities that you just have to shrug off because it's in the national interest that you shrug them off. We have to see if he can make that evolution from being real Donald Trump, uh, his Twitter handle, to being POTUS, to being the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of America. And the Commander-in-Chief of the United States of America has to think first about the interests of the American people and the national interests and not a perceived slight. So it will be very interesting to see how he makes that transition. What I worry about, to be honest, in 2017 is less Donald Trump and more three European elections, the French election, the Dutch election, the German election. If one out of those three goes in the wrong direction, the unraveling of Europe could continue, and that that could be really of historic importance. If two out of the three go in the wrong direction, then you've really got a, a world of problems.
2: I've left the big one in some ways to to last. Do you see any sort of pivot of American policy on the Middle East, Syria, perhaps Israel? Do we need to go back to the drawing board on all sorts of things, if you like, have been stuck for too long?
1: I just returned from the Middle East. Uh, I've spoken to Saudis, uh, Emiratis, and others. There's high hope for the Trump administration partly because they were so disappointed with the Obama administration. They felt in the Obama administration's uh, efforts to get the nuclear deal with Iran that they had not properly taken into account the interests and the security interests of their traditional Sunni allies in the region, and they, they at least expect Trump to have a more balanced relationship or even to tilt more back toward his traditional allies and be much tougher on Iran. Uh, I think there's reason to expect that might be the case. The larger question is, what is he going to do about Syria? And there, you know, know, it's hard to figure out what America can usefully do. And there, I think some of our allies may be a little bit disappointed in the sense that this is not a place where I think a a, a new Trump administration is going to jump in with both feet.
2: Fred Kemper, thank you very much. Perhaps we can check in with you in a year and see what's happened.
1: I think we, we better watch this one every month. But yes, I'd love to come back and talk to you again about it.
2: This week's guests on The Economist Asks have been Fred Kemper, CEO of the Atlantic Council and The Economist's foreign editor, Robert Guest. If you've any thoughts on Mr. Trump and his relations with Russia, Germany, NATO and the wider world, do please put them in an email. And send them our way to radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget to pick up this week's issue of The Economist, or you can find us online at Economist.com. In London, this is The Economist.
0: Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive.